This week as I read through this passage in Isaiah, I, I, I kept being reminded of this rhetorical question that the Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the Romans when he said, if God is for us, who can be against us? And that just kept running through my mind as I read this. So I'd ask you to ponder that as as I read this passage from Isaiah uh, and recognize that God is for us because of what Jesus has done in our behalf. So listen now to God's holy and inerrant word. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart, And the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones." All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not for me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness, your generosity, what we bring to you as our tithes, our offerings, and our gifts. They have come to us from your hand as you have blessed us and given us all things in Jesus. And we pray that you would use these gifts, these tithes, and these offerings for 
your glory in the world, in order that your kingdom would be revealed here and throughout the world, in order that the good news of the gospel would be proclaimed to all the nations. And Father, as we prepare uh, to sit beneath your word this morning, we ask that you would be merciful to us, that you would lead us to Jesus, that you would lead us to him and remind us of the very good news of the gospel, that we are more broken than we can imagine. But in Jesus, we are more loved, more secure, more accepted, more delighted in than we could have ever dared dream possible. So we pray that you would indeed lead us to Jesus, that we might see him with the eyes of faith. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, Children, children ages three to six, you're dismissed to children's church now. If you make your way to the back of the sanctuary, you'll be taken to children's church. Um, This summer, we've been looking at some passages in the book of Isaiah. And most recently, we've been looking at some passages that scholars refer to as the servant songs of Isaiah. And um, they tell us about this mysterious servant figure and the redemption that he brings. And when you get to the New Testament, we realize that the servant that Isaiah has been referring to, it's actually Jesus. Um, It's not necessary that you were here last week, but last week we were in Isaiah 53, the chapter just before this. And it's this amazing chapter not only in Isaiah, but really in all of the Bible, because it, t- it tells us very clearly why this servant Jesus had to suffer and die. He was wounded for our transgressions, Isaiah 53 told us. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, upon this servant Jesus. Um, this wonderful Good news of Isaiah 53. And as we move from that into Isaiah chapter 54, I want you to listen closely to what the scholar Alec Moitier writes about this chapter. He writes, Many divine acts are spoken of in Isaiah 54, but the only human acts envisaged are responses. See, this is a great place in Isaiah's work for us to consider and to understand how it is that we are to respond to the good news of the gospel, hence the title, right? How to respond to the good news. I know, really catchy and sneaky, right? Just tell you exactly where I'm headed. Um, several years ago, I, I remember listening to this sermon by t- a preacher named Tim Keller, and he mentioned listening to a sermon by the mid-20th century famous preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he heard him use this illustration. And I've never found it in print, uh, so maybe it's not in print, but even though it's coming to you two preachers removed, you know, um, and, and it's retelling, it's a very simple illustration. <clears throat> and it's this, he basically said, what would you do if someone met you at your house? Maybe you're returning from a week-long summer vacation, and someone meets you at your house, <clears throat> excuse me, um, <clears throat> and they say to you, while you were away, I went ahead and paid your bill. Uh, how would you 
respond to that person? Well, first you would need a little bit more information, right? You would need to know which bill, in fact, they paid. Because if that person said, I paid your Comcast bill, it was $70, you would say, wow, that's very kind, thank you very much. Uh, But what if that person said, I paid off the remaining 20 years of your mortgage? Um, That's a totally different response, right? That at that you fall down and kiss their feet or something like that, you know. Um, you know, it's really important that you understand this that the gospel is news, right? Sometimes in your Bible, the very Greek word that's used for gospel, it's translated just like that, good news, right? It, see, the gospel the gospel is not advice, right? It's not advice to tell you how to become a better man or a better woman, how to behave better, how to improve your morality, the things you need to do in order to get God on your side, or how to be a good person. The gospel isn't advice, it's news. It's an announcement. It's a proclamation. It's a a declaration, right? It's the announcement of what Jesus has already accomplished for you, right? He was wounded for all your transgressions. It's an announcement of that fact. He was crushed for all your iniquities. The punishment that brought you peace, it was upon Him. He has already done it, right? The bill has been paid in full. It's finished and complete. And so the question for us is, how do you respond to good news like that? And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you the news in three brief points, and then I'm going to give you four ways from this passage to respond to that news. So here's where we're going. First, news of many children. Second, news of redeeming love. Third, news of a beautiful city. And fourth, how to respond to this good news. So first, news of many children. There are several distinct metaphors that, that hit us in Isaiah chapter 54. And the first one is in verses 1 through 3. And it's a barren woman. Right? A woman who has borne no children. A woman who has never been in labor. And these verses tell us that this barren woman is going to have so, so many children. Right? Barren, but she is going to be so so very fruitful. I mean, you see the expansion that's going on here, right? An offspring, we're told, that possesses the nations and populates the desolate cities. Her offspring are going to spread to every corner of the globe. You know, when you read through your Bible, you, you'll find that there were many stories of barren women who later on gave birth. But these verses, I think, are are in particular an echo of the promise that was given to Abraham and Sarah in Genesis chapter 15 and following. And maybe you remember that story. Sarah was barren, and she was an old woman. She was far past her childbearing years. But God promised to make a nation out of her children, right? An offspring, we are told, that would outnumber the stars in the sky. And here the expansion takes off to, an, to even greater heights, right? We're not talking about just one ethnic nation, right? We're talking about nations in the plural, verse 3. So how are we supposed to make sense out of a childless, barren woman who's never been in labor, having children, 
from all these nations. Well, the Apostle Paul, he quotes Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1 in his letter to the Galatians. And there Paul said and wrote that the birth being talked about here in Isaiah most definitely isn't a natural birth, but a supernatural birth, right? It it would have to be, right? Uh, Children of nations, plural. Paul was writing to say that those who believe in Jesus, those who rest their faith upon Jesus, they are the children of this mother. They are children born of grace. Let me give you some interesting statistics from major world religions. You know, 90% of Muslims live in one part of the world, right? In the Middle East, in Africa, and South Asia. 88% of Buddhists live in one part of the world in East Asia, right? 98% of Hindus live in India. Of all the major world religions, Christianity is the only one that is actually spread out across the nations. 25% of Christians live in Europe. 25% live in Central and South America. 22% live in Africa. 15% and expanding rapidly every day uh, live in Asia. 12 to 15% live in America. Christianity exhibits more cultural diversity than any other religion. Right? Children in all the nations... How is that possible? See, unlike other religions, Christianity has been able to flex across borders, right, of ethnicity and race and culture into all the nations, right? Why is that? It's because the gospel isn't advice, but news. News that you can have an identity that is grounded in Jesus. See, the gospel is news of grace. You are accepted on the merit of Jesus alone, and not on your nationality, not on your ethnicity, not on your race, not on your culture. You are accepted in Jesus. I mean, the gospel really is global good news. It's good news for everyone, no matter who you are. Right? If you're black or white, if you're rich or poor, if you're from Asia or if you're from America, if you're good or if you're really, really bad. Right? If you're pretty or you're ugly, if you have lots of friends or no friends, it does not matter. The good news of Jesus can burst through every barrier and make you a child of God and give you a solid, lasting identity in Jesus. Okay, second, let's move on. Second, this passage is telling us also news of redeeming love. See, now we're into another metaphor in verses 4 through 10, that of a marriage of a wife and a husband. Grace can settle your identity, right? And deep abiding sacrificial love, it can redeem you through and through. Listen, this metaphor, this metaphor, like the previous one, it's also anchored in historical promise. And it shows up in many places in the Old Testament. And every time I see it, every time I see this metaphor, I think, wow, God, that is awfully risky to use a metaphor like that. Because it's a metaphor that if you think about it, it communicates a deep level of vulnerability. I mean, it's conveying to us something of the way God feels for His people, as well as His commitment to His people, right? I mean, alone is not good. 
Adam found that out in the Garden of Eden. But alone in a bad marriage, some of you know, that's, there is nothing worse than that. Right? Alone in a marriage where you have front row seats to watching your beloved hurt and do damage to himself or herself, if you do some reading, you'll find that there is nothing more hurtful, painful, despairing, and helpless than watching someone you love self-destruct. And that's the kind of marriage God enters into with us. I mean, think with me back to when God played the husband And he went and got his bride out of Egypt, right? You remember those stories of the plagues and walking them through the Red Sea. And he brings them to this mountain, Mount Sinai. And God spoke the Ten Commandments to his people there. And when he was talking to them about making images, God said this. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And he's not confessing some kind of petty jealousy or insecurity on his part. He is saying, I love you like my chosen bride. And to see you worship other gods and harm yourself and enslave enslave yourselves like that, it produces a deep, deep wound in my heart, and I can't just stand by and watch it. Scholar John Oswalt, he puts it well when he writes of the wife of youth in verse 6, of her being cast off and deserted and grieved because of her idolatry. He writes, The laughing eyes have turned into bitter eyes, broken by, by broken dreams and scattered hopes. And he writes this, The bride has been rejected, and the fault is all her own. Another scholar calls this, God's justified anger. But keep reading into verse 8. And the anger you see is just transient. It's just temporary. Redeeming love that is everlasting has taken over. Redeeming love. Verse 5. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. Verse 8. With everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Verse 10. The mountains and the hills will be removed before his steadfast love is removed from you. The metaphor of a wife, it it takes, and a marriage, it takes on special directness in the book of Hosea, right? Hosea was this prophet, and God told Hosea to go and marry this prostitute named Gomer. Not a woman who used to be a prostitute, but a woman who is a prostitute, This is why I'm telling you this metaphor seems just awfully risky for God to use, right? God told Hosea to marry this prostitute, and she cheated on him. And she gave birth to children that were not his own, right? And one day she left him entirely. You can read all of this in the beginning chapters of Hosea. Um, She left him entirely, and she shacked up with another lover. And if you were to be honest, if you were Hosea's friend... You would have said, forget about her. Walk away from her, right? You are better off without her. That's for sure. She's gone, and the fault is all her own. But you know what God told Hosea to do? I'm going to read it for you. He said this, Go, show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another and is an adulteress, 
love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods. God was having Hosea act out this prophecy. God wanted people, his people to see what his love for his people was really like. You know, you know what must have been real salt in the wound for Hosea? It's the very next verse from what I read, which reads this. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a lethic of barley. And I have no idea what a homer and a lethic of barley really amounts to. But he had to pay. He had to pay a price to get his wife back. God is saying in Isaiah chapter 54, that's what my love is like. I'm a redeemer, and I have bought my people out of their slavery. The gods you serve of pleasure and of power and of approval and of image and success and career and materialism and on and on, these idols that we fall down before and worship, God himself came to buy his bride back, and he paid in full the price. The gospel isn't advice. It's news. The price for his bride was his own son, and he paid it in full. He spared no expense to get his treasure. That treasure was you and me. And he spent even his own son to get you. That's how deep His redeeming love is for you. And if you get that inside of you, it will turn your bitter eyes and broken dreams and your scattered hopes into laughing eyes, right? Verse 5, your maker is your husband. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. All right, third, we see in this passage news of a beautiful city in verses 11 to the end of the chapter, verse 17. Some scholars guess at what all the different images here in this passage are meant to convey. And others who I think are smarter just say, I don't know. Um, and I'm not saying that I'm, I'm one of the smart ones, but, but that's where I am. I don't know what all these things mean. Pin, uh, pinnacles of agate and gates of carbuncles. But I do know this. God wants you to know this is a beautiful city. Right? Here's the nation of Israel. And they've been taken away into captivity by Babylon, right? And the city of God, the city of Zion, it laid ruined and desolate. They are a people without a home, right? What they knew as home had been destroyed and ruined. But here's this piece of news that Isaiah gives them. Because of the servant, you will get your home back. And it's going to be more beautiful than you can possibly imagine. It will be the home you dreamed of but never knew in reality. The home you wanted but could never really fully describe. And this home is going to be eternally secure. You won't be able to lose this home ever. Right? The imagery of verse 14 and, and following to the end of the chapter, they are telling us that this home is not just beautiful, but that it is entirely and completely secure. See, it's the home you were made for. It's the home you were made for, but you lost because of your sin. And hear this good news. Jesus, through his life and death, has purchased that home for you. And it won't be, it can't ever be lost again. 
I probably overuse this illustration, I guess, but, you know, the problem is I, I don't really care. It's just too good not to use. Um, and so, you know, C.S. Lewis, uh, in his Narnia books, he's telling this story, and the children in this story are coming to this new world, this new city, when he's wrapping these stories up. And it's, it's like what they knew as old Narnia, but it was so, so much better. <laughs> And so, so much more, right? And at the end, Lewis writes that this new story goes on forever and ever, right? Which every, in which every chapter is better than the one that came before, right? Always and forever more beautiful than you can imagine. What you dreamed about, but never knew. But, but my favorite part at the end of these uh, Narnia books is a few pages earlier from this where Lewis wrote that the new Narnia was a deeper country. And every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more, right? And one of his characters, I think, just put it perfectly, said this, he burst out and cried, I have come home at last. Right? This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. In the book of Revelation, the Apostle John, he tells us about this vision he had. And he wrote, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully adorned for her husband. Actually, two metaphors, the last two points combined in one. It's a deal, two for one. The the city, the home, right? We, the home, the place we were made for, it is going to come home, come down to us one day. And, he, and God himself will be with us, and he will wipe away every tear, and he will wipe away death itself. And there will be no more mourning or crying or pain in that day, right? That's the home we were made for. And it will be ours, not because of advice, but because of news, good news, because of what Jesus has already done for us. All right, now we're into the last point, how to respond to this good news. Now, you need to return with me to where we began with uh, Alec Moitier and what he wrote about Isaiah 54. He says, many divine acts are spoken of here, but the only human acts envisaged are responses. You've heard the good news, an identity that is grounded and secure in grace, that you are the treasure that God sold even his own son to get, right? A beautiful city, a home prepared for you, and all paid in full through the life and death of Jesus. Now, how do you respond to that? Four things here. By singing, by enlarging, by forgetting, and by resting. First was singing. Verse 1. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. The right response to the declaration of good news is that you would burst into song. Into joyous song, right? Blaise Pascal, the mathematician and scientist, he had a deep understanding and experience of knowing this good news and singing about it, right? He actually wrote down in lyrical form his song, and it was so precious to him that he actually sewed it into the lining of his jacket and was found when, later on when he had died. And this is what it read. This day of grace, 1654, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, 
not of the philosophers and scholars, security, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, greatness of the human soul, joy, 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 tears of joy, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, may I never be separated from Him. When the deep love of the Maker, who is your husband, dawns on you, it will fill your heart with song, with deep joy and delight. You see, C.S. Lewis wrote that joy is the serious business of heaven. And I'm telling you, it should be the serious business of earth too, for those of us who know Jesus. The good news has been proclaimed. And the appropriate response to news like this is to burst forth in rejoicing and in song. And the second way to respond to this good news is by enlarging. Verse 2 told us that because of this supernatural expansion of the children of the barren woman, we are to enlarge the place of our tent, let the curtains out and the habitations be stretched out, and so on. You know, reflecting on the good news of Jesus, the author of Hebrews wrote in Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 and 2 this, Keep on loving each other as brothers, and do not forget to entertain strangers. It's not especially clear in the English translation, but in the Greek it really pops, okay? First, the author says, because of this good news, Philadelphia, right? Brotherly love. And then he says, and don't forget to philoxenia, the same exact root word, only this time he's saying, show your love not just to your brothers, but to the strangers, Right, here's how you respond to good news. Enlarge. You make space in your life for other Christians. And you make space in your life for strangers and non-Christians. A lot of you are waiting to reach out to others. And you're thinking, I'll make space for them one day. I'll bring them one day. Right? Maybe I can get to it. See, you want to get to a place where you've straightened things out in your life. And it's not going to be so messy in that day. If you do that, you will wait forever. We make space for others, including outsiders. Why? Because we were outsiders. And the good news is not that when we cleaned up, God loved us. But that he showed us grace when the fault was all our own. Enlarge, make space for others, reach out, and don't wait to do it. All right, the third way to respond to good news is by forgetting. Verse 4, fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth. The truth is that some of us in this room, we are deeply ashamed. We often put on a good show on the outside, I know that, but internally, a lot of us just feel stained and ruined and defiled and unlovable and unable to move past shame. How do you forget your shame? Because so many of us are desperate to do just that and to be able to find real freedom. Let me put it to you this way. The way to forget your shame is to remember the good news. You need to constantly be reminded that the gospel is not advice, but a proclamation of news. Your shame has already been dealt with in the cross, and you have been given Jesus' robes of righteousness to cover your nakedness. 
If you want to forget, you have to remember. You have to plunge yourself beneath the flood of grace. And only then will your failures cease to haunt you and curse you and hold you captive. You have to remember in order to forget your shame. Fourth and finally, the way you respond to the good news is by resting. There's this really interesting verse near the end of our passage, and I I wish I had more time to deal with it uh, than we do this morning. But it's when God is telling us about the certainty and the security of this beautiful city. And God says in verse 16, Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy No weapon that is fashioned against you will succeed. And I wish I had more time, but God is saying, even when things look bad, I mean really bad in your life, when weapons are being formed and weapons are being made to hurt and destroy you, even when it looks like it's the worst possible thing, God is saying, remember that nothing happens apart from my will. I created the smith. I created the ravager, right? He's saying you can rest even when it looks like the bottom is falling out and the ground is crumbling beneath your feet because I am in control of everything, right? Even when it's hard and painful. But that's really, really hard for us to do. How can you trust him and rest when everything's falling apart? You can do that, I want to suggest, by looking at this table that we're about to come to, right? Because listen, Jesus' disciples, when they were following him, when Jesus was handed over to be crucified, he was crucified alone because all of his disciples, all of his friends left. They said, we thought he was the Messiah, but game over. It doesn't get worse than this. Crucifying a man like Jesus, right? But of course, it wasn't the end, right? When it looked like evil was winning and defeat was for sure, remember, God created the smith who blew the fire, who forged the nails and the spear. And on the cross, God's own son was destroyed and he was forsaken by his father, but death did not succeed. It did not win because Jesus was forsaken for you. He was crushed for your iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And a place of shameful execution became the very heart of good news proclaimed to you. Jesus on the cross, it is finished. Let's go to him now in prayer. Our merciful Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for The prophet Isaiah who wrote to us of the good news of a barren woman having many children. Of the good news of a wife who was rejected through no one's fault but her own. But who has been redeemed and brought back by your redeeming love. We thank you for the good news of a beautiful city prepared for us. And Father we pray that you would help us to respond rightly to this good news. To the good news of of Jesus. Father, even now as we come to this table, cause our hearts to burst in joy, to sing your praise. Help us that we would enlarge our tents and bring the strangers in 
and love our brothers and sisters in Jesus. Father, help us in order that we would rest in Jesus. Help us, we pray, to respond rightly to this good news. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.